Well, good morning, Riverview. It's good to be here with you all. Welcome to all the kids who are here for our family style service. Kids, I have a question for you first. You can cheer, you can clap, raise your hand. How many of you are excited for fireworks? Yeah? Okay. Okay. There you go. Now, adults, how many of you are excited for the explosions in the sky all night long? Right? <laughs> yeah. If you have young kids, you're probably like bedtime routine gone, but that's okay. Uh, we do it once a year. But happy 4th of July weekend to you. I hope you and your family and your friends are uh, going to get to relax and celebrate uh, over the next couple of days together. Uh, we're in the last week of a series that we've been in since the first weekend of May, uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Over the past 10 weeks, we've, we've looked at the various ways that our character as followers of Jesus is continually shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit's work in us. As we grow in our Christian faith, what happens is we become more and more like Jesus. And the fruit of the Spirit really reflects what that looks like in, in a lot of different ways. Things like love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. We've had sermons on all of those fruit of the Spirit over the last couple of months. And today we're wrapping up with the last one we see in the list, which is self-control. Now, whenever we think of that word self-control, it's usually in the context of keeping ourselves from something tempting. So this week I did a Google image search of self-control. And the most popular image I saw was a frustrated kid or adult staring at candy. (laughs) or cupcakes or donuts or ice cream or something like that was most of the pictures. And that's really how we think of self-control. I mean, it's to keep ourselves away from temptation. That junk food, whatever it is, is is baiting us, but we use self-control to not give in. We exhibit self-control and we have the strength of character, that strength of will to say no to things that aren't good for us in the long term. Now, the idea of self-control, it isn't unique to Christianity. Most of those pictures are from articles I saw for physical fitness or dieting or like developing mental strength. But what's really interesting about self-control is how it's often a contrary value to what many people live with in the world as their primary goal. And that is to have pleasure or to have comfort. Paul Bloom is a psychologist from Yale, and he wrote an article all about this. And in the first line of the article, he lays out what he believes to be the simplest theory of human nature. This is what he writes. He says, the simplest theory of human nature is hedonism. We pursue pleasure and comfort. Suffering and pain are, by their very nature, to be avoided. So according to Bloom, this is the simplest mission statement of humanity. If you talk to the average person, hey, What is your life all about? That person wants to have the most pleasure and comfort they can, and they want to avoid the most suffering and pain that they can. And as many people live their lives with with pleasure as their core value, they'll do whatever it takes to make pleasure the reality. Difficult things like working really long hours or exercise or self-control, those are often seen as just things that need to be dealt with in order to maximize pleasure in the future. But how does that theory of human nature intersect with Christianity? Is pleasure and comfort, is that really the thing, the core value that we are to pursue with our lives? Or is there actually something better than that? Uh, There's a guy in the Bible named Solomon. He was the son of King David. 
And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes that's in our Old Testament. And he describes this kind of life of that pursuit. Uh, And and in chapter 2, what he does is he reflects on everything that the world offered him that he took as a younger man. Things like money and vineyards and relationships, gold, silver, mansions. And look at how he described that pursuit in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 10. This is what Solomon writes. He's writing this at the end of his life as an older guy. He says, All that my eyes desired... I did not deny them. So pretty much what he says is, if I saw it, I took it. That was what he did. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles or all my work or my toil. This was the reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon saw his lifetime pursuit of pleasure and comfort as meaningless in comparison to a self-controlled life of living for God and his glory. And this morning what we're going to do is we're going to see how this fruit of the spirit of self-control, really all-encompassing with all the other fruit of the spirit we've already seen, it moves us toward greater joy than any earthly comforts could ever provide us. You know, that Greek word for self-control that we see in the list of the fruit of the Spirit is, is the word enkratia. And that Greek word, what that, what that describes is a person who has mastered their desires. Someone who's mastered their passions. And self-control, it's actually more than just saying no to certain things. I mean, similar to those pictures uh, that's tempted by, of, of people being tempted by food, we can tend to think that self-control is only resisting the temptation. But that's actually an incomplete view. Because if that's all self-control is, what we're left thinking all day is don't eat the donut, (laughs) right? Don't do that thing. Don't don't think that. But there's another half of self-control. And that's after we've resisted something tempting that we pursue something good. It's saying yes to something better and saying no to that other thing. What I like to, how I like to think about self-control, really what I think the, the scripture teaches us here is that self-control is having the strength of character to pursue godliness instead of sin. Well, what's sin then? Sin is a Bible word. Uh, It's any time that we fail to reflect God's image. And we do that in our nature. We do that with our attitude and we do that with our actions. Whenever we do something or think something or, or say something that does not reflect God and his goodness, that is a sinful thing. Well, if that's what sin is, then we need to think about the opposite, right? What is the opposite of not reflecting God. It would be reflecting him really clearly, right? That's godliness. Anytime that we succeed in reflecting God's character with our nature, our attitudes, our actions, that's what we pursue. That's a good thing. And self-control that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is what moves, that's what he moves us toward, toward godliness, toward people seeing God and how we live and how we love them. Now, there's a lot of verses in the Bible about self-control, Uh, But I really think that when you're looking at what all of them, you really look at three different areas of our life that we need self-control the most. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today. We need self-control when it comes to our words, when it comes to our hearts, and when it comes to our actions. So first, let's start with words. There's countless scriptures that talk about the power of words and, and their ability to impact a person. You'll see verses about gossip and, and slander and bitterness and just how much those can really put a person down. But on the other side, you see just how much encouragement can do for a person. Opening the Bible, sharing truth about who that person is, maybe the situation that they're walking through. 
You know, there's a short book in the New Testament that was written by James. James was one of the 12 disciples. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And, and in this letter, he was writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered abroad. And the letter is very practical. If you're a practical kind of list person, you'll love the book of James. Uh, he talks about relationships. He talks about pursuing godliness, dealing with trials, prayer, favoritism, and impartiality. But in the very middle of the letter, in chapter 3, he spends a lot of time talking about the tongue about our words, the power of the things that we say. And, and I like how James writes a lot because I'm a visual person. And he uses a lot of pictures to illustrate his ideas. And this is James chapter 3. He's going to use three different pictures about the power of words. This is James chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. Then verse 7, every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Okay, so here in just a few verses, we see the power of our words. And James uses three different illustrations to help us see this. First, he talks about the bit in the mouth of a horse. So if you're not very familiar with equestrian or horses or anything like that, the bit is just the thing that you put in the mouth of a horse that you tie the reins to, and that's how you direct it where it needs to go. And in the first century, this would have been a small piece of wood or a bone or a rope or something like that, but the bit of a horse can fit in your hand. And you can control a 600-pound animal with that little piece. James is saying that the tongue is like that bit, that tiny little thing that can control something massive. Second thing James talks about is the rudder on a ship. Maybe some of you will be uh, celebrating the 4th of July on a boat today or tomorrow. I will not be. Have fun. Um, but, But that rudder, what that is, that's the small piece underneath the boat that the pilot steers it with. And for a large first century fishing boat, like which would have been familiar to the disciples in in this time and context, the size of the rudder would have been about the size of my hand. It's very small, but this is how the pilot would tell the boat where to go. And the final picture we see, I think is probably the most severe. Uh, It's a small fire setting ablaze an entire forest. If you've been looking at the news over the past few years, the western United States has been battling wildfires just this week. I read that wildfires in California are are forcing thousands of people to evacuate and that 500 buildings are at risk of being lost. And most of those wildfires, they're started by something very small. Human carelessness most of the time. It's an unattended bonfire. It's not dousing it when you're finished or being distracted. But whole forests are set ablaze from one campsite. And James is saying, you know what your tongue is like? It's like that little campsite (laughs) setting ablaze an entire forest. Here we see the power of words and how how a lack of self-control can often hurt and bring down rather than bring life and, and heal. And that's why in other New Testament letters we see the encouragement to do the opposite with our words, to build up, to encourage I mean, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Ephesus about what their new lives in Christ should be marked by. And he says a lot of things about their speech. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. He says, Therefore, putting away lying, 
Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building someone up in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Then verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is a great picture of how a Christian, a person who is led by the Spirit of God and self-control, speaks to other people. They don't lie. They put away lying. They speak the truth. They avoid foul language. They choose to say things that builds up someone in need. Their language, instead of being marked by bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander, maybe what it used to be, now it's marked by kindness and compassion and forgiveness. And I love how Paul uh, wraps it up by saying, words like that actually do something for a person. It's in verse 29. Words like that give grace to those who hear them. With our words, we have the opportunity to show God's grace, to bestow God's grace to others. And that happens when we build one another up, when we speak the truth in love. We, along with others, experience the grace of God. When we pursue self-control in this area of our life with our words, we see just how much we can encourage one another. The second area of our life that, that, we, that we see in the scripture, that self-control is needed when it comes to our hearts, and now, now last week, Noel, when he shared, uh, he, when he talked about our hearts from what the Bible says about our hearts, he talks about it's not really our emotions or it's not our physical hearts, the things that are clogged with bacon grease, <laughs> Noel said, which maybe that's him. He eats a lot of bacon, I guess. But, um, but the heart, what the Bible talks about when it comes to our heart, that's the decision-making engine of our life. It's our mind. It's our intellect. It's our emotions. It's our thoughts. So when we're talking about self-control when it comes to our hearts, what we're primarily talking about is our attitudes, our thoughts, our emotions, the things that we strive for, what we daydream about, what we think about when we're not thinking about anything, right? Our countenance, our attitude that we have throughout the day. Jesus talked about this. He talked about that decision-making engine of our life. And he, he told the disciples what comes from the heart. This is Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. This is what Jesus says. For from the heart come evil thoughts. <laughs> what Jesus said here was actually in response to a question that the disciples had asked him. A few verses earlier, some of the Pharisees were very offended by something that Jesus said. This was kind of par for the course. The Pharisees were often offended by the things that Jesus said. But what Jesus said was that what comes out of a person is what defiles them or what makes them unclean, not what goes in. And the Pharisees were really offended by this. These were the Jewish rulers. They were offended because they really cared about what went in, what they ate. And that came from their understanding of the law. They prided themselves on not eating certain things in adherence to the Jewish law. So the disciples pulled Jesus aside. They're like, Jesus, do you know how offended <laughs> the Pharisees were when you just said that? So, the disciple, so Jesus pulls them aside. He's like, okay, guys, this is what I'm getting at. He explains the parable to them. He says, what you eat eventually gets passed through the stomach and eliminated. Don't miss the illustration that Jesus is using here. He's talking about poop, Okay. Gotta love Jesus. This may be some of your kids' new life verse. You're welcome sharing that in a family-style service. But don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Right after he says this, he's like, it's the heart. 
It is what is in you. That is where the evil thoughts come from. It's from our heart. It's from our very nature. It's not from outside of us. And yes, while things that we see and that we listen to and that we engage with impact our hearts, it's really from within us that these things take root because of our sin nature. Every part of us is impacted by sin. What we strive for, what we daydream about, our countenance, our attitude. We need the Spirit's help when it comes to self-control with our hearts. And I love how Paul encouraged the Philippians in, in, in this, in his letter to them. This is what he says at the end of Philippians, chapter four, verse eight. Paul writes this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. This is one of the last things that Paul writes to his Christian friends in Philippi. And he, he writes, finally, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, this is just the last thing I want to write to you. And he writes this list of words that really just show who Jesus is. They're a picture of him. And after that list, Paul says, dwell on this stuff. Now, I love that word, dwell. Like, what, what, what comes into your mind when you hear that word, dwell? For me, the picture is just sitting down and to, just to rest and to consider something for, for all that it is. And the Greek word for, for dwell in this passage is logizomai. And other translations of that word can also mean to credit, to count, to find valuable, or to treasure. When our lives are marked by self-control, there are better things that we treasure. Better things that we find valuable. Things we strive for. Things that mark our attitudes. Our emotions. Our thoughts. Things that we dwell on. And this verse tells us what those things are. Things that are true. And honorable. And just. Pure. Lovely. Commendable. Morally excellent. Praiseworthy. As we pursue self-control when it comes to our hearts, as the Spirit makes us more self-controlled, what we think about, our attitudes, our emotions, they become things that reflect God and his goodness to us. Those things actually become more attractive. We don't white-knuckle our way into thinking about those things or letting our lives be marked by those things. They look better because they are better because the Spirit makes them better to us. Apart from our words and apart from our hearts, the final place we see self-control where we're called to this is with how we live, with our actions. Back in the first weekend of May, we started this series and we were looking in depth at this passage where the fruit of the Spirit comes from. This is Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 and 23. But right before that, I'm going to read verses 16 through 18 because it really talks about our lives. It says this, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit, you'll certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's against the spirit, and the spirit desires what's against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Here we see Paul writing to the church in Galatia about the two drivers behind the choices that we make in our life. We've got the flesh and we have the spirit. The flesh is that old sinful person you used to be that's kind of lingering, <laughs> that's hanging on. But the spirit is God living in you, making you more like Jesus. And the language in this passage, don't miss it, it's talking about how we live. It's talking about our actions. Look at the verbs. 
walk by the Spirit. Don't think about walking by the Spirit. No, walk by the Spirit. Don't carry out the desires of the flesh. Our lives of self-control are marked by the decisions we make to follow Jesus every single day. To honor him with our lives, with our actions. The Apostle Paul wrote about this somewhere else to the church in Corinth, and he used a sports analogy. I'm a sports fan, so whenever the Bible uh, uses sports, it always makes sense to me. Sorry if you're not, but just bear with me. Uh, But Paul, he uses a sports analogy to encourage the Corinthian Christians toward self-control. This is what he's calling them to. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul writes this, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Now, this illustration that Paul was using would have really resonated with the people in Corinth because, like us, they were obsessed with sports. (laughs) Our our culture today, we're obsessed with sports. We, We have stadiums and professional athletes. They had these big stadiums that people would train for months and months to go compete in. They would, they had the Isthmian Games, which were very similar to the Olympics. And the prize that these athletes competed for was earthly glory, a literal perishable crown. The gold medal for winning the Isthmian Games was an olive wreath that someone would put on their head and, and to be the champion. But that prize, it would perish, right? It was an olive wreath. It would die. And the glory of those athletes' accomplishments died too. We don't know any of them. We don't celebrate any of these athletes in the Isthmian Games, right? It was a perishable crown, a perishable prize. But Paul connects this idea to followers of Jesus, how we are to exercise self-control in our lives of faith. And do you see what he tells them to do, well, us to do? It's simple. Run. (laughs) He says, run. Run in such a way to win the prize. Everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. But Paul tells us to run with something different in view. Not something perishable, but imperishable. This imperishable crown that he talks about. Well, what is that? It's really important that we know what this is. That imperishable crown that we run for, it is not salvation. We don't run the race to earn what we already have. We've already been redeemed by the work of Jesus. That would be like lining up for a marathon when you've already got the medal. No one's doing that, okay? But what the imperishable crown is, that is what we will receive in glory when we go to dwell with God forever. It's being told, well done, good and faithful servant. It is the reward of a life well-lived for Christ and his glory over our own. It doesn't surprise me that self-control is last in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, just like it didn't surprise me that love was first. Love and self-control are pretty all-encompassing fruit of the Spirit, right? Because as, as followers of Jesus, we love God. We love people. We are known by our love. It says that in the book of John. And then we also pursue self-control when it comes to the various ways that God calls us to live, to reflect him, to worship other people. So I want us to think about ourselves when it comes to this final fruit of the Spirit. Last week here, where do you lack self-control? Where are you growing in self-control? Is it with your words? Is it in your heart? Is it with your actions? For me, I'm the type of person that I need diagnostic questions 
Because if I just answer those questions, I'll say, eh, kind of, <laughs> you know, sure I could grow. But for me, I really need specificity. I need some self-diagnostic questions to really help me understand this. And so I'm going to ask some just in each of these categories. First, let's just think about our words. Is your speech reflected by gossip, slander, bitterness toward others? Or do your words bring grace to other people? Does your speech reflect the truth of God and his goodness? Now think about our hearts. What drives your life? What do you daydream about? What are your thoughts and your emotions and your attitudes shaping you into? Who are you becoming? Do you dwell on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, morally excellent, praiseworthy? And finally, our actions. Are there any ways that you are carrying out the desires of the flesh? What would it look like for you to walk by the Spirit instead? to run that race with endurance and self-control, looking forward to the imperishable crown that awaits you. Just like all the other fruit of the Spirit that we've spent time learning about in the last two months, we can take confidence in knowing the Spirit is at work in us. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is happening. You have the Spirit. He is in you. He will never leave. And while God is doing that work, we come alongside him by, by trusting him by living for him and for the purpose that he has given to us. You know, as Paul Bloom wrote in his article about that simplest theory of human nature being our pursuit of pleasure, he, he talked about how a life with that as the end goal is just not satisfying. And as he writes, and he says this explicitly in the article, hedonism is an awful theory because it's never enough. Just like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it's chasing after the wind. Guess what? There's always something that you're going to want that you get, and then when you have it, you're going to want something else. There is something of greater value that should be pursued over comfort and over pleasure. And do you know what that answer is? It's a life of purpose. It's a life of meaning, of significance. And while those things can be experienced in pleasure, sometimes they're experienced in the opposite in suffering, in hardship, in discipline, in self-control. Bloom writes this toward the end of his article. He says, it's not that we seek out suffering. It's not that we do that. Rather, we seek out meaning and purpose. But part of meaning and purpose is difficulty, anxiety, stress, conflict, boredom, often physical and emotional pain. We choose pursuits that we know will test us. Training for a marathon, raising children, climbing Everest, because we know at a gut level that these are the pursuits that matter. Well, I don't know if Bloom is a Christian or not, uh, this, uh, this author. What he writes gives me hope in my life as a follower of Jesus, because following Jesus is the most worthwhile pursuit we could ever have. The meaning of my life the purpose of my life. It's not some elusive thing that I have to go find as a Christian. It was given to me when God saved me and made me his own. It, the same thing happened for you. Because when you become a Christian, your life is no longer yours. When I became a Christian, my life was no longer mine. When I put my faith in Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection for my sins, that choice was for me to lay my life down before him. 
and to live for him. Everything that I used to want, all the pleasures I idolized having, all the desires for riches and comfort, they must come after my desire to know Christ and make him known. And this is the struggle, the daily struggle for me. When those earthly things, when those pleasures, when those comforts try and dethrone my worship of Jesus. And every day when that happens, do you know what I need? Self-control. I need the help of the Spirit to pursue good and godly things instead of the things that will only provide me with momentary pleasure and comfort. John Piper is a pastor and author of many books, but, but he's really known for what he believes should be the mission statement of every Christian. <laughs> and he calls it Christian hedonism. He says this, God is most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in him. I love that. Because while there's incredible joy in being a Christian, it's difficult, but it's a life of meaning. It's a life of purpose. One where our lives point to a good God who loves us and who gave himself up for us. We see this in the gospel. Jesus came to the earth to rescue us. He lived, he died on a cross, and he rose from the dead for us. Jesus left the comfort of heaven to experience the struggle of humanity. I like how Titus, how it sa- what it says in Titus 2, verses 12 through 14 about this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. For the grace of God has appeared, offered salvation to all people. This is the gospel, that God's free gift of salvation and life in him is for everyone who accepts it in faith. And this salvation teaches us to say no to worldliness and yes to lives that are godly, that are upright and self-controlled. As followers of Jesus, our lives are marked by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as God continues to do this work in us, we're not on the sidelines. (laughs) He chooses to include us in that work, sharing the gospel with the world, offering salvation to all people by faith in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I do first just want to thank you that you do this in us. God, as I think about my own life, uh, how often I'm tempted to look at things that would provide me pleasure today, um, but not eternally. God, how often I need self-control to to remember that you are so much better, (laughs) that life in you, joy in you is better. 
God, as we think about this series, as we think about the fruit of the Spirit, ways that we may be in need of of the Spirit's work uh, to grow us, God, I pray that we can have peace knowing that we are secure in your hand, that you're a good Father who loves us, that promises to make us more like Jesus as we grow. And God, I pray that we can come alongside you in that effort, that we can live self-controlled, godly and upright lives in this age and point to our good Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.